1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we've already uh, begun uh, going through this chapter. And we've kind of looked at the first um, eight verses. And the first eight verses, uh, just before we read verses uh, 9 through 13, uh, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, and, and in chapter 5, he begins to discuss the matter of this, um, this brother who is in unrepentant sin. So this is a person who confesses to be a believer, who is living in unrepentant sin. And Paul says, not just any kind of sin, but this is sin that's not even named among the Gentiles. He was in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And he was not ashamed of it, and he was not repentant of it. And Paul is addressing really two things in this chapter. He's addressing not only the sin of the person confessing to be a brother here, but he's addressing the sin of the church that seems to be uh, boasting and proudful and arrogant about who they are and their gifted teachers and their giftedness as a church. And in all of their boasting and glorying about who they are as a church, they have left this matter undone and neglected. And Paul is really addressing both of these issues here, which really, for us, uh, addresses a larger issue in the church in general. And so, you know, this is the exhortation of the Scripture that is not written to us specifically, but it's written specifically for us. Amen? So, let's read. Instead of reading the whole chapter for time's sake, we're going to begin reading in verse 9. So he says, I wrote to you, verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a a reviler, a reveler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Father, we just ask you today that you would open our hearts and open our minds to the truth of your word, to your gospel, by the power of your spirit, God, I pray that you would remove the hardness of our hearts. You would remove the blindness from our eyes. Lord, any veil that would remain over our eyes that would hinder us from being able to hear and to receive your truth. Lord, we're not looking for just a carnal understanding of what your scripture says. Father, we're looking and we're asking and we're praying that your spirit would open the eyes of our understanding and you would give us spiritual discernment of your truth. And through that discernment and through that truth, God, you would set us free. And that you would transform us and that you would conform us to the image of the Son of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, this is is a chapter that a lot of people don't like to talk about because it deals with some really tough issues. 
And uh, it deals with an extreme example of church discipline. And I'll just be honest with you, church discipline pretty much doesn't exist anymore in our Western culture. Um, And it doesn't, I think in large part, or in, in a lot of ways, because people have just given up on it, because it's just too easy for people to... Uh, you know, if not like what they hear or not like what happens, and they just pick up and go down the road. Um, and there's reasons why we should or we should not do that. Uh, the good news is, and what's really amazing, and we don't want to have time to look at everything uh, concerning this today, but I'll just tell you, this brother that was disciplined by the Corinthian church at Paul's exhortation uh, we read later on in his second letter to the Corinthians, it, it seems like the discipline worked. When they shunned him and they put him out, uh, the, the reason for doing that wasn't to make him feel condemned or to belittle him or to drag him through the mud. The, the point in doing that was that it bring restoration. And Paul's second letter to the Corinthians seems to indicate that that worked. Now Paul, in his second letter, is writing to them, and he's telling them, hey, some of you guys need to let go of this thing. This brother has repented, and you need to forgive him and stop hanging on to his past. Because if you keep hanging on to his past and reminding him of his past sin, you're going to discourage him and do damage to him. And Paul warns those believers to not do that. And so that gives us... Uh, that indicates to us how we are to handle these situations. It's not that we don't ever bring discipline, but, but when a situation arises and we have to, just like our children, I mean, this is, not, this is not hard to understand, especially in the context of parenthood. And we're going to talk uh, about parenthood today as an example of discipleship. But parents, you know, when your kids do something, that's wrong or not right, and you have to discipline them. I didn't say punish them. I said discipline them. Discipline can be punishment sometimes, but the point is not to just punish. The point is to to lead them and guide them in the right direction. And so when they do that, when you do that as a parent, you don't just continually hang that over your child's head, or I hope you don't. If you do, then that's not good. You're going to discourage them. You're going you're gonna to damage them instead of doing what discipline is designed to do, and that's to help them grow and become healthy and, and, and stronger and learn the right way versus uh, the path that would lead to destruction or that's not profitable. And so this example of extreme discipline actually worked, and, and it was done for the right reason. Oftentimes, we think of all the wrong reasons, or we approach people in the wrong way. So Paul, as he writes this letter, and we go back up to the first verse of this chapter where he says, look at verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Your version might say fornication. So this, this word fornication is a Greek word that generally means sexual immorality. Well, what does that mean? Well, that could Sexual immorality could be, uh, we could put that in the context of unmarried uh, boys and girls having sex together before marriage. We call that fornication. Okay, that's a sin, by the way. Um, Or you have two married people uh, who are having sex, but it's not with their spouse. We call that adultery. That's also uh, sexual immorality. 
and that's also a sin. Now, in our culture, you know, I think some sins have become a little bit more politically acceptable than others. So it's it's kind of a little more politically acceptable to have the, you know, the white-collar business guy falls in love with the secretary because he spends 15 hours a day with her working on the company's business, and everybody just kind of understands, well, you know, they're just, it just happens. But then, you know, we look at the homosexual marching down the road, and we just want to be, uh, we want to throw up when we see that. But this sin over here, we just kind of wink at. See, that's, that's, that's called hypocrisy, and that's not what the church should be about, and that's not what Paul was about. And so the point is, and, and we'll see this as we go through 1 Corinthians, he doesn't just harp on this incestual relationship. He later on says, look, I'm telling you what, whether you're a thief, an extortioner, uh, an adulterer, a fornicator, a sodomite, it doesn't matter what you are, these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And there's a reason why. And the reason is not just because of the behavioral aspect of those things, because those things don't just speak of behavior. Those things speak of our identity. So let's go back to this example. Paul says, if this brother, he calls himself, he names himself a brother, if he's in this unrepentant, sexually immoral relationship, then I'm confused as to his true identity. And he's really talking to the Corinthian church here about their identity. This is why he goes back and he says, I came to you and I purposed within myself to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Why? Because Christ is not only my identity, Paul was declaring, but Christ is, by your own confession of faith, Christ is your identity. So let's get the identity issue straight. Christ is our identity. Incest, sexual immorality, in whatever form or fashion it takes, is not consistent with your identity in Christ. So we have a conflict here. How do we resolve the conflict? Well, we've got to preach the truth, bring the truth, and we've got to exhort those who are confused about their identity i.e., I'm going to just live in sin. I don't care what you say. This is right for me. I'm going to keep drinking and I'm going to keep doing drugs. I can stop anytime I want to, but I choose not to. I'm going to keep having this relationship with this woman who's not my wife because she completes me. She fulfills me, and I don't really care what you say. This is right for me. Divorcing my wife, divorcing my husband is right for me. Well, I'm going to keep taking things from Walmart that are under $5 because if it's under $5, it's not really stealing. And besides that, Walmart has plenty of money and I don't. So you know what? It's right for me. I just don't see a problem with that. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, It doesn't matter what the sinful behavior happens to be. Those things are not consistent with our identity in Christ. And so Paul says there's a way to deal with this. And the way not to deal with it is to be boastful or to be arrogant and have a puffed-up ego and think your church is all this, but you got all this unrepentant sin and stuff that you just refuse to deal with because you're 
too caught up in the, you know, the glory of all these things. He said, no, that's not the way to deal with it. That's not good. You shouldn't be boasting about these things. You shouldn't be glorying in these things. And so in this extreme example of church discipline, this isn't a rule for every time or for every way. It's an extreme example for an extreme situation. It should be the exception and not the rule when it comes to sinful behavior that manifests in the church. Because we need to all remember this, but for the grace of God, we would all still be dead in our sin, struggling with who knows what kind of sinful lifestyle. Do you hear me? But for the grace of God. You didn't do that through the sheer power of your will. You didn't save yourself through the sheer power of your will. You didn't get delivered from whatever by the sheer power of your will. It was the grace of God that enabled you to be able to come out of death and into life. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 8. So Jesus, what is, how does the Scripture de- describe Jesus? In John 1, uh, 14 and in verse 17, it describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. Let's look at that. Go over to John chapter 1. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we need both grace and truth. We need God's abundant grace, and we need God's abundant truth. Amen? It is that grace and that truth, that goodness of God that brings us to repentance. So our life, when the Bible talks about our life, it means our walk. Or when it talks about our walk, it means our life, our living So we could say it like this, our living must reflect the reality that we are now light. We once were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. That means we are to walk, we are to live as children of light. Amen? It's not an option. It's not not a choice Paul is presenting. It's just the reality of it. If you are born again, you are light. And what does light do? Light dispels darkness. I I love what Brother Ehlers, when I met with Brother Ehlers a couple of weeks ago, he said, as only Brother Ehlers can, he said, Brother, he said, when you you turn on the light, he said, the darkness doesn't stand around and argue about whether it's going to leave or not. When you turn on the light, the darkness leaves. And this is what Paul is saying. If you have been born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer darkness. You are light. So we need to see ourselves as light. We need to understand that's our identity. I'm not identified with darkness anymore. That doesn't mean I don't struggle. We all struggle with sinful behaviors and bad habits. That doesn't mean we don't have a struggle. But what it does mean is that I see myself differently. I know myself to be different. I know that the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
that reality is in Christ. Now, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, now all things are of God. Why? Because I am a new creation. Because the old has passed away and the new has come. Remember, we are triune beings. We are spirit, we are soul, and we are body. And at the moment of our new birth in Christ, when we became new creations, God, by the power of his spirit, miraculously caused our spirits to be recreated, born again, if you will, from death to life. My body is on a downward spiral. It's going to pass away one day. One way or another, it doesn't matter. None of our bodies are going to escape death. We may see the return of the Lord physically and be changed in the twinkling of an eye, but we're going to be changed. We may live to be 88 and die in our sleep. However it happens, this body is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So this body's got to pass. So what is, what is in between, if you will, my spirit and my body? It's my mind. It's my soul. It's the seat of my mind, my will, and my emotions. What is the majority of the New Testament, especially Paul's writings about? It's about having your mind, your will, and your emotions transformed, renewed. So my mind needs to be renewed according to what? According to the spirit that dwells in me now, the spirit of truth, the spirit of God. My mind needs to be renewed according to what image? According to the image of the Son of God. My mind should not be conformed any longer to the world. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12.2. So this is the process of sanctification. We have been sanctified, but we are also being sanctified. I am a new creature. I am seated in heavenly places in Christ, but I am also on this earth walking out this walk of faith and and. While I'm doing it, my mind is being renewed according to the truth. And I'm guaranteed of success. I'm guaranteed that this process will end in success. Why? Because, I'm, because I've done something? No, because of what Christ has already done. So we have promises like Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work and you will, not might, but will complete it even until the day of Jesus Christ. Or Philippians 2, 12, and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Don't stop there. God didn't leave it up to you to work out your own salvation. Read the whole verse. Read it in context. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to do and to will according to his good pleasure. Hallelujah. So the state of the church, and this is, understand, this is what Paul was dealing with. The state of the church is not defined by the giftedness of its teachers, but by the fruitfulness of its people. The Corinthian church was glorying. Oh, look at us. We're so gifted. I speak in tongues. I prophesy. I have the gift of healing. Well, I have the gift of, Paul says, hey, all you guys need to settle down. 
Because it doesn't matter what gift you have. It doesn't matter what you're able to do. Prophesy till the cows come home. Listen, if you don't have love, what is love? It is the first fruit listed. It is the fruit. It is the defining characteristic of the fruit. There's not nine fruit. There's only one fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those things speak of the fruit of the Spirit. They all are defining characteristics of what it means to have Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the chief characteristic, and we can boil it down to this because this is what Jesus did. You can boil it all down to love, and that's what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 13. If you don't have love, I don't care what your gift is. I don't care how gifted and talented you may be. Without love, you are nothing. And so he's challenging these guys. He said, look, you're glorying and you're boasting in all this, but where's the fruit? If you really love this brother, then deal with him in a loving way. Don't let him sit here unrepentant of his sin and and even boast about it and Cast it into your face and think that it's okay. If you really love God and you really love your brother, then stop boasting and glorying about the wrong things and come over here and help this brother who's on a path to destruction. And help your brothers and your sisters by not allowing this to become the defining thing of the church in Corinth. And what are we American church going to allow to become the defining attribute of the church in America or what has already, what things have already become defining attributes? Do you sense the confusion that exists in the church today? Do you sense the bipolar nature of the church? One side wants to call evil good and the other side wants to call good evil. Those who have been born again have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. Our life is not our own, but we've been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Why do you think Paul's writing those words? This is the same letter. This is one chapter beyond where we are. Paul is saying, do you guys understand who you are? Paul, in those two verses right there, he goes back to identity. He says, do you understand your identity? This is your identity. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Christ dwells in you. He is pleading with them to understand this truth, this reality. So we're to walk and we're to live as children of light, not because we're trying to become light through our good works, but because we have already become light by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And our walking as children of light, our walking that out, just manifests to all, to the world, who we are. I lay in bed at night, and I know that my dogs are truly dogs because they bark for hours. And I yell, shut up! 
And they do for a little bit. But then in the distance, you hear a dog bark faintly, and they start back up again. I'm sad to say that my dogs dug out from under my fence the other day, and they killed one of our new cats. it's, It's sad. And once again, what did that prove? That my dogs are truly dogs. They are true to their nature. Now, they don't kill things all the time. They're sweet. They love to be loved on and petted. They're, they're really quite pleasant. They wouldn't harm a flea, just a cat. Well, they probably would harm a flea. But, you know, their lives reinforce the reality of what their true identity is. And this is really what Paul is saying here. He said, is your life declaring and reinforcing the reality of your true identity? I I hear what you're saying with your mouth, but what I'm seeing lived out seems to conflict here. We need to get some things straight. The church should not be afraid to do that. Because love demands, just like parents, love demands that you discipline your children. Not in a mean way, not in a harmful way, but in a loving way. And that if you really love them, you're going to discipline them. You're not going to let them just do what they want to do because the proverb says, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So we can look at parenthood to help us understand because what was the point of all this? Paul is discipling these believers through his letter here. He's He's discipling them. He's teaching them. He's telling them about the gospel. He's telling them about their salvation. He's telling them this isn't just about what you think it is. This is about something much deeper. The things we do and the things we don't do, they really matter. They really do. So ultimately, parents don't, cause their children to grow. You understand that, right? You're not ultimately the cause of your children growing, physically or spiritually. That's what God does. God created life. God gave us life. And ultimately, I believe both physically and spiritually, God is going to be the one that's going to determine growth. You know, I put some little corn plants out that we had left over. Don't know if they'll make it or not, but we put them out there. Listen, the fact that those things grew from seed wasn't anything I did. There was something inherent there in God's creation that life and growth are are synonymous. But it's fair to say this, I think you would agree, parents, that parents have an effect on how their children grow. Parents are responsible to affect the health and the quality of growth and the direction and the way their children will grow. Thus the proverb I just read. Or how about the other proverb, train up a child in the way he shall go and when he's old he'll not depart from it. That picture is not of, it's less of the prodigal son and it's more of a tree. Train a tree in the way it is to grow And when that tree matures, you're not going to be able to... This is an oak versus a bonsai, right? We're not bonsais. We're oaks. And if we're trained right as saplings, when we grow, 
When we're mature, we're not going to depart from the way. It ain't going to happen because we are rock solid, planted by the streams of living water, flourishing in the heat, flourishing in every season. So as a pastor, as an elder, the concern cannot be only that you're getting good, gifted teaching that pumps you up on Sunday or even equips you on Monday. Are you listening to me? The point of our teaching, the power of the gospel, is transformation in the life of Christ, that you be conformed to the image of the Son. It's the power of the gospel by the work of the Holy Spirit that brings the initial and the ultimate transformation, but it's the living of life, the walking together, the ability, listen, the ability and the responsibility, because there are both. We have to have the ability and we must take the responsibility to speak into someone's life that will have an effect on how they grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We need to be able to humbly give and to receive such. Amen? We all, from the pastor, from the pulpit to the pew, we need to be able to humbly give and receive so that we are growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. So as children are not designed to grow up without parents and their parents' proper influence, children of God will not grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ apart from the godly influence of other more mature believers in their lives. This is why our assembling together is very important. This is why our fellowship together in large and in smaller groups is very important. This is why your relationships, one-on-one or in twos or threes, is very important. And we see these things modeled in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He had the 70, he had the 12, he had the three. At every level, and he had the multitudes, at every level, Jesus related to those that were with him. He related to the multitude very differently than he related to the 70, He related to the 70 different than he related to the 12, and he related to the 12 different than he related to the 3. Because there's things that you can do with multitudes, but there's things you can do in twos or threes that you can't do with multitudes. Amen? There's things we can do here on Sunday morning that are meant to be done, that are good to be done, that God has ordained to be done. But there are a lot of things that we can't do here on Sunday morning because... It's, it's just not appropriate. It's not practical. So parents, there's no other person that is to take the place of the first and greatest godly influence in the life of your child. And parent, you are that. You are that greatest godly influence. Do you guys get that? So I can have an influence behind this pulpit, preaching to you. But it's not the same influence I can have if we have a more intimate, personal relationship. There's things that that we can discuss. We're discussing right now, but it's kind of a one-way discussion, right? On Sunday morning, but there's 
There's things, for instance, when the small group gets together on Tuesday night, there's things that we discuss on Tuesday night that, that don't get discussed on Sunday morning because this isn't the place to do it. There's things, parents, that you need to discuss with your kids. Fathers, there's things you need to discuss with your families. Moms, there's things you need to discuss with your families. Kids, there's things you need to go to your parents about. Parents, there's things that you need to go to your kids about. So when we look at this letter that Paul lays out, we kind of see if we, we look at the bigger picture here. I think, I think it would be fair to say that by the time Paul writes this letter, Paul's attitude is, how come no one has dealt with this issue? How did this issue get to the place that it was where it's now become so disruptive in the church that it threatens the very reputation of Christianity in Corinth? And this is why when we look at the family, when we look at how parents deal with their kids, this is why the Scripture calls the people of God a family. God created the family to be a place of safety, structure, and health in every way. Would you agree with that? The family should be a place of safety, structure, and health. And when the family does not provide safety, structure, and health, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, you know what we call that family? Dysfunctional. I work with a lot of different social agencies and organizations, and you hear the word dysfunction and dysfunctional used a lot. You know why? Because everybody recognizes that our culture is very dysfunctional. Well, I wonder how our culture became dysfunctional. I'll tell you how. Because we've allowed families to become dysfunctional. And you know how families became dysfunctional? I believe because the church stopped preaching the gospel. And the church became like parents because they want to avoid conflict at all costs. I had a parent, this was many years ago when I was a youth pastor, I had a parent who had a child who was chronically running away from home. And I mean, they didn't just go to the end of the road and come back. And I'm talking to this mom, because the dad was just, he was there, but he was too angry to deal with things, or too, I don't know what, but talking to the mom and, I'll never forget what she told me. She, I, I said, why do, you, why do you just let her do whatever she wants? Well, I'm afraid if I put any restraints on her, she's going to run away. I'm like, she's an hour from your house right now. She's run away from you. Do you? It's like the mom was so blind to that reality. It's like, oh, I just don't want to create any more conflict. I'm afraid I'm going to lose her if I do that. I'm like, you've lost her. She's gone. She ran, she ran, I'm here because she ran away from your house. You're afraid to put constraints on her because you're afraid she's going to run away? This is why, listen, this is why the Scripture calls us a family. When the family doesn't provide safety, structure, and health, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, we call it dysfunctional. But it's dysfunction, listen, doesn't change the intent or the responsibility. So the church has a responsibility. 
just like families have a responsibility. Remember what God, when God asked Cain, where's your brother? What happened to your brother after Cain had murdered Abel? And what was Cain's response to God? Why are you asking me? Am I my brother's keeper? And you know what the implied answer is? Yes. I'm not my brother's Holy Spirit. But I am my brother's keeper. So if I see my brother in danger, if I love my brother, what am I going to do? I'm going to warn my brother of the danger. Just like if I saw someone getting ready to do something that was going to result in their death, I would pull them back out of the street because they didn't know that car was coming. I'd do that for a stranger. I certainly would do it for someone that I profess to love, right? But yet somehow in our culture today, we've, we've kind of lost this. It's become too easy to abandon ourselves from this responsibility. And so here's Paul's challenge to the church in Corinth. Do you guys really love? I know you're really gifted. I know you got it going on. You've got all the smoke and all the mirrors. I know you're the latest talk, but do you have any love? Because love wouldn't belittle your brother like this. Love wouldn't neglect your brother like this. Love wouldn't boast about who you are while your brother is over here hurting. Love wouldn't do that. So the church is created and designed to be a place of safety, of structure, and of health for the believer. Paul writes in Ephesians that the church is the body of Christ building itself up in love. So let's look at verse 12 and 13 of this chapter. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Sin in the world is God's responsibility. This is why I firmly believe that the church should not be out there protesting at gay pride parades. Because anyone that's going to march in a gay pride parade, I don't believe... I just would question whether they're truly saved. Or we could use a lot of examples. God will take care of the world. What we need to do is be out there in the world manifesting the love of Christ, the truth of Christ, the grace of Christ, so that we're not driving the world away from us, we're showing the world a contrast. And we give the Spirit of God then the room to work and to draw instead of them only seeing hatred of the church because we're out condemning and judging the world while we're refusing to deal with the things that exist in our own camp. You see why the world thinks we're, they just don't want to have anything to do with us? All the things we accuse the world of are just as, they're in some ways, at least in the professed church, are just as bad. But we don't want to deal with that. We'd rather just point fingers at the world. So God, Paul says sin in the world is God's responsibility. Sin in the church is the responsibility of the church. 
God has placed shepherds over the flocks to ensure the safety, the structure, and the health of the people of God. Acts 20, 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's an admonition to me and to the elders here. That's a warning to me and to the elders here. You didn't put yourself in this position. The Holy Spirit made you an overseer here. My calling didn't come from man. My calling came from God. And therefore, I'm responsible not to man, but I'm responsible to God. Fathers, parents are the shepherds of the family. Parents are to deal with the issues spiritually, emotionally, and physically that hinder or impede the health of their children and thus hinder and impede the health of the family. I think every parent would agree with that. Then it stands to reason the church needs to deal with the things that would hinder or impede the health of the children of God, the church and the culture. So if we look at the home, and we have parents dealing with the things that hinder and impede the health of their children, that's going to have an impact not only in the health of the family, it's going to have an impact in the health of the church, it's going to have an impact in the health of the culture. Do you see the progression? How are we all here today? Because somehow, somehow, there has been a witness maintained for all of these centuries. Let's just go back to Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Let's just go back to Pentecost 2,000 years ago. Something has happened, something has been maintained that has enabled the people of God to to maintain this cohesive culture, this family, this body. The Bible uses this terminology on purpose to help us have an understanding of the nature of our identity. And so pastors and elders should, should only deal with those things that have not been properly dealt with by the proper responsible party. This is why when we talk about our salvation and our sanctification and it's the Spirit of God that's conforming us to the image of Christ, that does not remove personal responsibility. So personal responsibility is something that we need to be conscious of. Parental responsibility is something we need to be conscious of. Kids, if your parents have told you to take the trash out 157 times, they shouldn't have to ask you 158 times. So if you know that this is what you should do and that's like a standing thing, take personal responsibility so that your parents won't have to exercise parental responsibility. My wife right now is going, preach it, brother. Just, just, just live what you're preaching. Don't make me have to ask you to take the trash out again. Okay? I mean, this applies, listen, to young and old. From the pulpit to the pew, it applies. We need to take personal responsibility. 
The Bible commands us to. Parents, take responsibility for your family, for your children. If you're in a group, if if you're in a men's group, if you're in a discipleship group, whether it's here at work or whatever, if you've got a group of friends that you're... Don't be afraid to let them hold you accountable. Be responsible to your friends, to those that you're in relationship with. And if necessary, and this is where Paul comes to in this extreme example of church discipline, if necessary, if all of those things don't work, then we've got to do what we've got to do. You need to put that brother out. That's a hard thing. But look what, I want you to look at verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, let's read these two in context. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, in light of this, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, if we were to go back, and we we won't do it because I know it's already five after, ten after. But Deuteronomy 17.7 is where Paul's quoting. Do you know the context of Deuteronomy 17.7, put away the evil person from yourself, the context of that that was take them outside of the gate and stone them and kill them. That's not what Paul is telling the church to do because Paul understood that's not what we do. That's what, that was the old covenant. That was the example, the extreme example because What God calls us to is an extreme holiness, an extreme righteousness, which we are unable to fulfill in and of ourselves. So how do we become extremely righteous and extremely holy? Only through Christ can we do that. So we don't take our kids out and stone them when they chronically disobey anymore. We don't take church members out and stone them when they chronically disobey. But the point of putting them outside, the point of putting them away was for the health of the, of the people of God, for the health of the community, for the health of the body. And it was also for their restoration. So now, in the new covenant, here's the thing. Put them away from yourselves. Because if, listen, If they have truly been crucified with Christ, they're already dead. They're already dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Put them away from yourselves, and that act of discipline will cause a repentance to come to them, and they will come back to you. And that's exactly what happened here. Well, what if they don't come back? If they don't come back, then it may be fair to say they didn't lose their salvation. It may be fair to say that they were never saved to begin with because I personally don't believe you can lose your salvation. I think the Bible teaches that if we're truly saved, we're secure in that salvation. But if we're secure in our salvation, we will also endure to the end. If we're secure in our salvation, when something like this happens, the extreme love of that congregation brought extreme repentance to this brother, and he came back to them 
in repentance, and they were restored. And the point of discipline is restoration. Just like parents, the point of disciplining your children is restoration. It's hopeful, not destructive. It's hopeful. Amen? So it's like a doctor. You go to the doctor sometimes, he says, you know what, you need to get more sleep. Go back and say, I still have a problem. He might prescribe a medication. In the extreme scenario, you know what? He may have to operate. And that's, that's not a pleasant thing, is it? It's a painful thing. But the point of the pain of the operation is to bring healing and to bring restoration. And that was the point of what Paul was encouraging the church to do here. It wasn't for destruction. It was for healing. So like physical health, so it is with our spiritual health. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think Benjamin Franklin said that. And that is true. Why should you purpose to assemble together? Not because you're earning brownie points to get to heaven. But because we need one another. Because there's encouragement and there's life when the body comes together. Because you need to be equipped for the work of ministry. Not, I'm not talking about just in the church. I'm talking about least of all in the church. I'm talking about the work of ministry that's out in the world where you live. Because that's where the lost is. That's where the sinner is. If you don't purpose, I believe this is the most important gathering or assembly that exists. I believe that. I believe the gathering and the assembling of the people of God is the most important gathering and assembling there is. It has far-reaching and eternal effects to every area of our life, from the family, the very basic unit called the family, to our culture and the world. And we're seeing the effects of the dysfunction of the church manifesting in our culture now. Because we've compromised and we've watered down. We've been more interested in the circus and the carnival and drawing people and making them feel good for a moment instead of believing and working and doing the hard things that will pay the benefits of eternal transformation in their lives. We should be about eternal transformation in the lives of people. So don't wait until conflict is unavoidable. Apply an ounce of prevention now. Don't wait. Because if we wait, it may be too late. Some people say it's too late for America. I don't know. I'm pretty optimistic because I think God can do anything. But God may allow some painful things to happen in the church and outside the church cause us to finally wake up and realize. Amen? So the same must be applied to the church, to discipleship for long-term safety, structure, and fruitful glory. Amen? Because that's really what it's all about in the end, is God's glory. And Jesus said, the Father is most glorified by the fruit that your lives produce. So I want you to go get the kids next door, bring them, and we're going to take communion now together as a body. And the reason I wanted to wait 
Because I, I really believe these are important things that we're talking about. I think Paul took the time to write these things down, and I think the Holy Spirit made sure that these things were preserved for us because these are important things. And so when I make this statement, I wrote this during the, while we were singing earlier, there is no more important gathering than the gathering, than the assembling of God's people. It has far-reaching and eternal effects for all. Do you believe that? I believe that. You should believe that. Now, some people minimize it. Some people trivialize it. Some people forsake it. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But God has ordained the assembling of His body. When we come to the table, and we're getting ready to come to the table, the Bible says we come to the table and we partake of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is not just a little wafer that you're getting ready to eat. You are the body of Christ. When we get to the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that Paul tells the Corinthian church, he, he warns them to rightly examine themselves and to rightly discern the body. That's not just deal with the sin that's in you. He's telling them to look around at the people that you are in fellowship with and discern the body of Christ. It, listen, this is the cross is the great equalizer. This is why Paul says over and over and over, listen, there's no more rich or poor. There's no more Jew or Greek. There's no more male or female. There's no more slave or free. That's why James says, don't prefer the rich instead of the poor. Because in Christ, we are all the same. Our identity is not my riches or my poverty. My identity is not my ethnic background. My identity is Christ. Period. That's it. When we look around at the body of Christ today, when we come to this table, yes, there's diversity, but do you see that we are one in Christ? That we are one body? Parents, do you understand the responsibility you have, fathers, to be the priest of your home? Parents, to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Their spiritual health doesn't begin here on Sunday morning. It begins in your home. And we should be reinforcing that and supplementing that. The health of the church is not dependent upon just what happens behind this pulpit. You are the church. What is your commitment to the body of Christ? What is your commitment to what Christ has done for us in His death, His burial, His resurrection? When we come in just a moment and we take that wafer and we take that cup and we proclaim His death, are we understanding the full impact of what we are doing? I want to encourage you to ask God to give you a revelation of these things. That you wouldn't minimize the body of Christ, the gathering of the saints, that you would see the maximum glory that God intends when His body comes together. And that you would discern the power that exists in you Christ in you to go out and to affect the world around you. Amen. Let's come to the table and we'll pray together and we'll take.
the bread and the cup together.